Floyd made a lot of good, he made good fiddles. And uh, two months ago, Floyd passed away. And his uh, daughter called me, his wife. They come down, they said that he, he'd been cremated and is trying to figure out something to put his ashes in. And uh, I want to know what I thought. And I said, well, I got... Let me, I told them what I'd do. I, I had an old coffin case made back in the 1800s, just like a new one. I had two, actually. I got one is rosewood and one is ebony-like. So I cleaned that ebony one up, and uh, and we fixed it to put his ashes in for the uh, services and all. And this is a, it's a coffin case. It's an old coffin case. It's got arch top. It's just like a coffin. A fiddle. Since he was a fiddle maker, I thought, well, now, you know, to me now that would be appropriate now the reason i saved that rosewood that's going to be mine welcome to rosin the bow an audio journey through the world of the violin family i'm joe McHugh. And there's been a lot of talk lately about the United States Attorney General, William Barr. Well, this podcast features an interview with a decidedly different Mr. Barr. His name is Tom Barr, and he is one of the first people I interviewed for the Rosin the Bow Project back in the summer of 2014. Tom was 70 years old at the time and proud owner of Barr's Fiddle Shop in Galax, Virginia. Tom's son, Stevie, helped run the shop so his father would have time to make violins and banjos. Galax is a small town tucked into the folds of the mountains of southwestern Virginia. Every August since 1935, the town has hosted the Old Fiddler's Convention, and Paul and I traveled there to attend the festival and interview Tom. I also participated in a panel discussion about old-time music at the Chestnut Creek School of the Arts. I did the interview with Tom inside the music shop while festival goers milled about trying out instruments, buying strings, and catching up with old friends. It is fair to say that Tom Barr is a man of many parts. Musician, luthier, music store owner, labor union organizer, and community booster. I liked him right off the bat, and I hope you enjoy his stories as much as I did and his unique take on the world and life. Well, this this building was, uh, according to all the uh, records and everything, this building was built in 1910, and it was actually built as a barber shop, and uh, it was a working barber shop. And uh, in 1924, there was uh, a couple people played music, which a lot of barber shops either done barber shop quartets, but it happened. To, these people played uh, regular musical instruments, acoustic instruments, banjo and fiddle. And, that type of thing. So they had music in here all the time, and so the uh, alderman was one of them. Uh, that so in 1924 they went to New York and uh, got up there and they started playing in what they call vaudeville or something. Uh, anyhow, they uh, they they got up there and uh, where they was uh, going to be performing, they wanted to know what was the name of their group, and they said, "Well, we're just a bunch of hillbillies from Southwest Virginia." So he said, well, we just call it Hillbillies. Well, that's where, he'll, uh, the record says, that's where the Hillbilly music started from. It's like 
although there was music being played before then, all along they had been playing it for years too, you know. But in 1924, they'd done their first recordings in New York, which we have a lot of the old records they, they recorded at that time. And uh, so, in a sense, they was the pioneers and kind of the, uh, like the birthplace of country music, as we know when you look back. In 1924, they was original recording people. They didn't have any field recordings until 1926, and that was in Bristol when the the big se- session started. But Bristol, uh, we have records of 1924 in this shop, and I don't think Bristol has any records made in 1924. But th- this would be kind of the birthplace of the uh, recording of uh, country music. Bluegrass, uh, well, old-time music, bluegrass music, all kind of originated from the hillbilly scene. And, uh, in fact, uh, I, people used to call it hillbilly music on up in the 50s. They were still calling it kind of hillbilly music because it was a mountain, you know, mountain people, and that's, it was just another way of life for these people around here. But anyhow, I, I didn't know the history of this building in uh, 1989, the buildings was for sale, and so I bought them and and moved. I had a shop in the west side of town, and I moved the shop here in ni- January 1990s when I moved into the buildings. Later, I found there was a bar- barbershop at that time, and uh, later I found out the history of the buildings. Joe Wilson of the National Council of Traditional Arts up in Washington and uh, the uh, Library of Congress, all of them, has all this on record now, and they informed me about the history because I, I wasn't around when this history was being made. So we got the, all the proof of it and the records from it. But we, so you know, it's really nice to be in a building, and uh, I feel kind of honored to be in a building where such great musicians, had, you know, got started. They they had no music to learn. They had to do their own music. They had the, uh, a lot of records, people's, uh, a lot of that music that are being played now that they'd done back in 1924. And, uh, but they had, they had to learn by doing. Like I say, there was no books out for them to learn music from or no uh, CDs or anything else. They had to uh, just start, uh, learn from their families and things like that, and their, their uh, neighbors, because they hadn't never been anywhere, so it had to be in this area. And uh, so I, I feel real fortunate to be part of a, a situation and have a building in downtown Galax that's, uh, that's got that much history. One question I had for Tom was where did the fiddlers in the Galax area, in days gone by, acquire their violins? They mostly was mail-order catalogs on where you got anything. They, they wouldn't know such things as music stores or anything, and everybody... I just had to order them, you know, uh, and of course, you know, it, nobody had, a lot of people didn't have anything much, so it, it would have been a, been a whole lot of money if you had to spend 10 or $15 for a fiddle. That would have been like spending, you know, $1,000 a day, or, you know, $800, $1,000. And their instruments, though, uh, when you look back at their instruments, their instruments wasn't all that good. They had cheap instruments, and uh, but they played good music. And uh, so I, I think a musician really makes the instrument also. Uh, 
His knowledge of music is what really makes the music. It's not the instrument. It's what a musician does with the instrument. It's kind of in you. You don't. You don't really. You can't teach it. Uh, you can't teach what these fellows had. Uh, it's something that was part of their life. And it'd be like uh, nowadays. Uh, we got musical families. Uh, like my wife, uh, her her grandfather uh, played fiddle till he's 97 year old, and he, the last place he played was on Gaylax stage at 97. He's deceased now, but. She was around music all her life. Her mother, all, everybody was the same way with my family. All my family played music. And I was around it. It's just like about every week it would be people gathering and playing music. Uh, I wasn't one playing, but uh, my mother showed me, uh, you know, the chords on the guitar and showed me how to use a pencil and a rubber band to make a capo. And so that was... Uh, that was what we had. We had an old, uh, uh, it was a Stella guitar. I, I don't think you can find them nowadays, but uh, I'd like to have that guitar. <laughs> but uh, uh, she was she was a good guitar picker, and uh, we'd done about the same thing at the Carter family. Uh, we played the same kind of music, and, you know, some people makes it, uh, they all play about the same kind of music. Some people makes it, and, you know, some people just enjoys it. If you if you deal with violinists, you're uh, you're actually dealing with people who's got more money, and you make a whole lot more money. If you're dealing with fiddle players, uh, they might be playing the same stuff, but they don't have any money much, so they're the more of the poor musicians. And uh, so, what you have to do, you you in our part of the world down here, we have to deal with the fiddlers. We have we have no violinists. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, we was hoping some of them would get rich enough to be a violinist sometime. <laughs> but anyhow, that's the kind of way. The violinists, you know, they they like their bridges. Uh, I can set up violin and set up gut strings and things like that. And uh, but uh, most of the people uh, they play fiddles. I mean, you know, it's uh, they're. Uh, play chords and different things on fiddles. They got a little bit different bowing technique and, and all. It's all music though. I like violin music the same as I do uh, bluegrass or old time music. I mean, it's really nice that people would spend that much time get uh, professional training and everything to be a musician, but these most of these people playing fiddles don't have time to do, be a professional, uh, you know, trained musician, so they have to be a fiddle player. But I'm sure there's some fiddle players that can play violin uh, t music too, but it would be a little bit different tone to it, but it'd be the same. They can play, you know, orchestra music also. I've, I've seen them do it. But, I, I, well, another thing, fiddle players as, as cannot read music. Most of them, would, you can put a note and they wouldn't know what it was. It, same way with me, I wouldn't know I don't know, the only one I know, my son can read music, but he learned in school playing trumpet, but uh, he's the only one I know that can read any music. And but now another thing that does, when you're playing by ear, you have to be a little bit creative. If you make a mistake, you kind of cover it up and keep going. Or if you uh, uh, was playing by note, looks to me like if you make a mistake, you'd want to go back and try to correct that note, and that won't work, see? So... Uh, that would be a lot of difference having to play by turning the page too, you know, uh, by notes. And uh, in in this country, everywhere you go is a little different style in fiddling. 
I was uh, playing in Ohio at uh, at Gambier College, and I heard this fiddle playing off in the distance. And uh, it was the same kind of fiddling that we have in Upper End of Grayson County here. That uh, it's, it's a style that's, that's uh, just this area. From people that was born and raised around this area, it has a certain style. Well, I heard this fiddle playing, and uh, I, I thought, well, I'll go down and check that out. I said, they got to be from Grayson County, but it was uh, Tony Ellis. He was from down here in the mountains of North Carolina, between, around the edge of Tennessee and North Carolina, Virginia. So his style of fiddling was so familiar with, and uh, in the, that's how I met Tony Ellis, though, was uh, at a festival about 25 years ago uh, and all. But uh, he evidently learned from uh, people in this area. And then, you know, of course, he's... Uh, uh, hello. Hello. But that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the what I noticed about fiddles, that everywhere you go, you know, if you go down in Alabama or somewhere, people playing instrument playing fiddles, but they got a little different style. Go down to Georgia, it's a little different style. But this style in uh, western uh, Virginia, in the mountain section, the Blue Ridge Mountains, is completely different than anything else. Let's listen now to a portion of the song, The Blue Ridge Mountain Blues, as recorded by the Hillbillies from Galax, Virginia, back in the 1920s. Now I thought it was time to get down to business. What should someone look for in a violin? And what does it take to make a good violin? You can't really tell a whole lot about an instrument if you're playing it, but somebody else can play the instrument and you can hear the little uh, difference in the uh, uh, strings or how it sounds, uh, how it would be. And you have to put a, a fiddle or a violin with music to really get the true sound with other instruments. Uh, it, there are so many things. So you can make a violin or a fiddle and and do do everything right and uh, do and then at the end do one thing wrong and you've learned everything you've done to start with. So you gotta have the right uh, wood. First of all, you gotta make sure that it's, uh, the wood is a certain, uh, will have a certain ring to it. Then it has to be cut at a certain time of the year and uh, when the sap's always down. 
and then you got to air dry it for so many years. And you have to paint the ends of them with uh, a seal it to, to let it dry normal. Otherwise, they, it would be cracked and everything. And uh, But y your wood is the starter of it. Then, when you get uh, everything start making a fiddle, then the next thing is, uh, is important, not the looks, it's the graduation of your back and your side and thing to get the right thickness and that's in the soundboard and then you go into the bass bar which is on under the bass strings that gives you the bass tone the bass bar has a lot to do with music if you have too big a bass bar you don't have the sound if you have too small you got a, a different sound now i made a few five string fiddles and i had to use a heavier uh, bass bar to get the uh, quality of a viola and a violin combination so you got uh, four strings as a violin and uh, the other string with the fifth string you got a viola so i made i made kenny baker a five string fiddle one time uh, i made several you know five string fiddles and uh, it's just a the but when you get to it the wood get to, get a, get the bass bar and all that then the next thing is the finish if you put the wrong finish on one you've destroyed what you've done before it's a long process and it's a trial and error also i, I have actually just uh laid i've got more parts laying around that i messed up than i had good ones in my shop i mean it looks like a uh you know a lumber yard with pieces half finished but because i made mistakes i just had to put them aside i don't want to do do away with any wood so i keep I keep it. I'm like a hermit. I keep it, you know. And it's uh, or what do they call them people that uh, <laughs> hoarder, hoarder. <laughs> so anyhow, but once in a while, uh, I don't think I've ever uh, completely finished a, a bad fiddle. I think most of them I made was actually at people's playing them. I don't have an instrument right now. Uh, I may. Uh, most of the instruments I make is gone before I get them done. But the con condition I do. It's my fiddle until somebody wants, uh, likes it. They have to play it. If they don't like it, somebody else will like it because everybody's different on that. And uh, so when somebody orders a fiddle off of me, I, I says it's on one condition. If you're not going to play it, let me know because I don't want to waste my time a year or something making something for somebody and them going to hang it on a wall. It's... Uh, you know, life is uh, short, so you don't want to waste it making something, a wall, what I call a wall hanger. So I try to make something that, for the person, and sometimes I kind of personalize something, uh, you know, uh, certain kind of initials or something, but I also, uh, the man that taught me how to make fiddles, Albert Hash, he named each one of his fiddles a name. He would call them uh, by a different name and put the name of their instrument I wish I had started doing that because every instrument should should be named because you know if you've got a favorite person you got a name well you know if you got a favorite fiddle it ought to be you know old Betsy or something it ought to be a name you know and so Albert he was far ahead he made fiddles for 56 years before he passed away and like I say he was the man that uh, I worked in his shop, and the first fiddle I made, I didn't have any tools or anything, but it took me a little over a year. And that fiddle's in a museum up here in town, up in Galax here. I, 
some people wanted it for there, so, you know, it's, uh, but anyhow, I've only made about 70 fiddles. Uh, I got into making uh, banjos uh, also. Uh, uh, there was a fellow by the name of Kyle Creed uh, was making banjos, and he got real sick. And he come down to the house and wanted to know if I would, uh, he wasn't able to finish. He had about eight banjos sold, wasn't able to finish all of them. And uh, so I started going up there and helping him uh, work on his banjos. Well, I just kept making banjos. I made over 300 banjos now, but uh, he, he's the one that taught me how to make banjos. But back then, we had to make uh, rolled brass, make our own uh, tension hooks, everything. And uh, nowadays, you can buy a tension hook real cheap instead of making them and uh but there's a lot of work uh all that stuff uh years ago we, we didn't have tools we had to make our tools next i wanted to know how tom became a violin maker what did he do before he became a violin maker and and who taught him how to make violins i got married uh my first marriage 1958 and my daughter, I got a daughter that was born in 62. And uh, anyhow, I went to work in the monument. Well, I worked in the furniture factory for about a year. And uh, then I went to work um, in the monument works. It was a uh, in Mount Airy, North Carolina. And uh, there was uh, a union uh, shop. And you had to belong to the union in order to work there. So... Uh, I started serving an apprenticeship to become a draftsman. And it was a three-year apprenticeship. Well, uh, that was my first experience of working with uh, trade unions. And, uh, you know, I, uh, normally people would just up and fire you if they didn't. But uh, anyhow, I got along real well and everything. It, uh, so I'd done that kind of work for about 20 years. But uh, in, in cutting the monuments, we cut a, a lot of different stone down there. Uh, people would, uh, we had people selling stuff, all, uh, monuments, and they'd turn their orders in. But there's one, uh, one, the first, first one we cut. Uh, it was uh, this, these people in the musical uh, instrument. These people come in. They were from England. They had bought a monument for Charlie Poole. And Charlie Poole was uh, an old-time banjo picker from down in uh, his leakful draper and spray and they combined it and call it Eden now in that area. So uh, they wanted me to put a banjo on the front of this monument, which I had never seen a banjo before. So I got me a Sears and Roebuck catalog and uh, and I got, uh, they had a picture of a banjo there. So I draw it, but when I put it on the monument, I had the frets getting uh, bigger down toward the, the banjo head. And, and smaller up the neck, which is opposite what they really are. And uh, they put on the, put the monument on an album of Charlie Poole, <laughs> and then when they come out a repro reproduced album, and there's that monument with uh, the frets. I, every time I look at it now, I thought, boy, I should have known a little more about that. And uh, Ralph Stanley's brother, uh, Carter Stanley, when he died, uh, they come and we cut a. Uh, I cut a big guitar on his monument. Uh, he was buried up up in the coal fields in, in Virginia. And most of the musicians, they always had, uh, you know, if they played guitar, they had to get, they wanted a guitar on the monument. If they played uh, banjo, wanted a banjo. I put fiddles on monuments. It just, there's one boy was uh, driving a truck for 
H and W truck in Mount Airy, and he had a wreck out west, and so I had to go take a picture of the truck and put it on this monument, the one he had, uh, like he had uh, was driving, had to paint it the color and everything, and that, and he was buried over in Carroll County. But uh, people wants on the monument what the people uh, either worked at or represented. And then this family come in one day, one of the uh, sad things was uh, they come in with a, a mayonnaise jar uh, lid, a little old, uh, I don't know what, anyhow, it's a mayonnaise jar top, and, they, and they, their child had died, and uh, the only thing this child would play with was the mayonnaise jar top. They had plenty of toys, but they meant nothing. The mayonnaise jar top meant everything to them, and so I had to draw that on the monument. And then uh, that's, that was a kind of a sad time. We have a lot of sad things, you know. But there's another thing. Uh, there was a man come in from uh, Peru, and that monument's out on, off the Blue Ridge Parkway. He uh, had a picture of his uncle that had passed away and was buried up here, but he wanted uh, a team of oxen and uh, the old man with, with a plow plowing. So this monument was about 10 foot wide. It was a large thing. So I, I done that one and uh, it's still, I go by, what's when I look at it because it's uh, such unusual stuff to see an old man plowing a field with a team of oxen, you know, that's, uh, but that's what they did where he was from. And uh, that's probably what he did. That's why they wanted that on there. And uh, I was playing music with a bluegrass group uh, called Virginia Virginia Mountaineers. It was uh, Parley Gray, uh, Wes Golden, which he later, Wes played with Ricky Skaggs later. And we had Mike Leonard and we had, uh, you know, different people as a year. We played music about 10 years. It's just strictly bluegrass music and uh, we'd play festivals and different things. It benefits, we've done a lot of benefits trying to raise money for sick uh, folks. Anyhow, we played the merry-go-round, which was in Mount Airy, WPAQ. We played that thing for all oh, about seven or eight years. And then we, we also would come Galax and play what they call uh, Afternoon Jamboree. And at Galax, uh, I remember we played that for over a year. But one, one year, we, uh, one day was, was on Saturday afternoon. We, we started playing at, uh, we played from two to three o'clock. We played an hour show, it was a live every Saturday afternoon jamboree. And we always took a fifth of uh, liquor and set it on the piano. The old boy that was uh, doing the MC work, he was in another room, he had a little old cubby hole, he couldn't see what we was doing. And we'd, every Saturday we'd have that fifth liquor sitting on the piano. And uh, we'd all pass it around, and uh, we'd be about loaded time we left the radio station. But, uh, and then they had a preacher come on at three o'clock as we go off he'd come in there and he'd look at us and look at that bottle of liquor and he'd get on his knees and start praying for us well then we'd get a call from early up church he was a gospel uh singer and everything that come on he, he played music over live from 3 30 to 4. he said y'all are sounding so good said uh, y'all just wait and play my help me play my show too but we were really loaded the time he got there. He just thought we was all just happy that we could be. <laughs> but anyhow, we, we used to have a ball over there, and the people running the station, they had no idea what was going on in their station, you know. But uh, we done, like I say, we've done that for a long time. And uh, you wouldn't believe what happened to me right out here in front of the store. There was a church 
uh, I'm a landmark Baptist church. But they've always said that, you know, fiddling and the devil and all this stuff kind of, uh, you know, fiddling music is Satan's work. A lot of churches would not even allow anybody in the church with a musical instrument. But anyhow, this church come down here, oh, it's been 15 years, maybe 20 years ago, and they they was handing out little leaflets, and it had a picture of a devil with a fiddle, and it said, on there are big things, that don't fiddle around with your soul. And uh, they was blocking my door, so I asked them to leave. And uh, I said, go on up the street. They wouldn't do it, so uh, I called the police. And uh, we had three police cars down here. They come in, and the, and the chief of police says, oh, said, we can't, said they're part of the church, we can't tell them people to go up. I said, what would you do if that fellow there blocking my door was drunk? He said, I'd arrest him. I said, what would you do if he's on drugs? He said, I'd arrest him. I said, don't you think there's something wrong with somebody that's got the whole town and choose to stand in front of somebody? He said, well, I'll ask him to leave. I said, that's all I want you to do to start with. Anyhow, they, they went on up the street and started handing out literature above the store. And for about a year, none of the people in that church would buy a trade with me at all. And evidently, they must have figured out something. They started coming back, and now we're all good friends and all, and they trade with me all the time, and uh, I'd make donations to their church and all. But, you know, it was just, uh, they didn't understand about music. It turns out now a lot of people in their church playing music. They have music all the time. But uh, some way or another, somebody years ago misled them, and, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to see churches see the light sometimes. And... Uh, Albert Hash, he, he, not only did he, uh, he was a uh, person that taught me to make fiddles, he also got Wayne Henderson, which is a well-known guitar maker uh, all over the world. He got him into making musical instruments. Um, a lot of people in the area that's making uh, musical instruments today, Albert Hash is responsible for it. He was a machinist. Uh, uh, and uh, he made made fiddles though for 56 years, but he was also worked. You know, there's not a you can't make a living making musical instruments. You have to work somewhere on the job, and same way as me, I have to I have to work somewhere. And uh, making musical instruments is not a not the work. That's that's your uh, what you do, but uh, you can't make a living at it. So. Uh, Albert, he was a machinist, and uh, he made most of his machines. Uh, he worked with the uh, electric com company, Sprague Electric. He he uh, he could uh, take and bore uh, gun barrels, and all. He he was uh, a little more in the metal part, but he, uh, like I say, he made fiddles. And uh, anybody in the, I mean, uh, uh, within hundreds of miles would go to Albert to get wood. And uh, also uh, any uh, you know information. Uh, bow maker. Uh, there was a bow maker in Charlotte. You uh, had went up and asked, had Albert to make uh, a fiddle for him. So there's a lot of people really enjoyed Albert, and he was real reasonable on his price. But he was uh, uh, good man. Anyhow, the Forestry Service. It's 1978. Uh, was going to do a. Uh, movie on uh, the timber uh, as on the East Coast uh, uh, in comparison with the timber on the West Coast, and you know, like the big sequoia and everything, where you can drive a car through them. At one time, we had those same trees in this area, 
and they was doing a movie uh, demonstrating that, and they wanted us to do a soundtrack, so we worked on it a couple days uh, at this little old cabin up in the White Top Mountain, and uh, in exchange, it was, uh, it was Albert Hayes and Thornton Spencer, his wife Emily, and it was um, my wife and Flurry Dow and me. Yeah, Flurry Dow was a banjo picker out of Alabama played with us uh, back then, and uh, Incidentally, we had a band for about 20 years, uh, you know, the original White Top Mountain Band, but in exchange for us uh, doing a soundtrack for them, uh, Forrester people let us go in the north side of White Top Mountain and cut some of the red spruce. And with the condition, we only way we'd have to carry it out, we couldn't take no kind of machinery or nothing else in there, so, and we had to do it during uh, October when the sap was down, and uh, we only had a couple of weeks, about the middle of October to the last October, to do what we was going to do before the uh, winter set in. See, winter set in White Top Mountain uh, in October. You could have two or three foot of snow in White Top Mountain. It's old. It's the highest mountain in Virginia. Yeah, I've left here. I left here one time to go get wood. It was 70 degrees in Galax. When I got there, there was 10 inches of snow on the ground, and. Uh, They'd had a bad snowstorm on that mountain, and uh, even the towers had been bent over, touching the ground, and uh, so I didn't get no wood that day. But uh, that was a uh, difference in the uh, in the weather in a 50-mile range from Galax, and although it's in, still in the same county, that's how different the weather could be. And uh, the uh, the wood, the trees is on the north side, and the sun never shined on these trees. And the grain is so close. Uh, I mean, it's hundreds of year old. I mean, more, you know, hundreds of year old. And uh, the grain was—it's just real close grain. See, if each each year you have a different uh, ring on a tree, and if if you look at the ring when you cut a tree, uh, you'll see a year every once in a while it'll be eighth of an inch. Uh, the tree grows, expanded, and it might be a, a thirty-second of an inch, and a sixteenth. But on the north side, the sun has everything to do with the growth of uh, everything. But now, the slow growth is where the sun don't shine, and you have real close grain. So it takes, uh, say, a tree that's uh, 15 inches through. In the sun, that tree might be 30 inches through. It would be twice as fast if the sun hits it every day. It's a different in the growth. But the thing about cutting in October, all the sap goes out of the tree. That's what. That's why the leaves turn, and that's why the. Uh, you know, of course, spruce don't have leaves, but that they still lose their sap. And you cut it because if it uh, the weight of the wood. If you wait till the sap starts coming back up, which is actually first of the year, the sap's done coming back up in the tree. Although winter's still going on, but it starts rising, and wood would be real heavy unless you cut it. You've got two or three weeks. You have to cut the tree. And the rest of the time, instruments, it, it's not good for instruments. And red spruce is, uh, it's the only place around here that uh, we have any red spruce, but, uh, and uh, all the insects has killed all the trees all over the, uh, the country. Uh, they got blight, they call it, but it's actually insects that's eating them up. Uh, but uh, the, even the red spruce is gonna be gone. So people has got wood now, uh, it's pretty fortunate. I've, I've still got plenty of wood. We, we, they let us have uh, whatever. We cut about 
four or five trees, and we could only use the wood up to the first limb because that's where the knots started. And you know, you can't have knots all in fiddles or mandolins either one. I got a mandolin I used uh, that wood to make, but and the top wood is actually your soundboard. You know, it's that uh, whether it be on a p- piano or a uh, violin or whatever, uh, the spruce, uh, your top is, is your soundboard, and it has to be done right and has to be uh, cut right, too, and uh, you have to have... Uh, but anyhow, it's, uh, it's some of that stuff you have to see to, to uh, really know uh, what I'm talking about. Um, we went on a goodwill tour for the uh, government and the uh, United States government. It was in the 85, I believe. And uh, we was over eight or nine days, but anyhow, uh, we played music in Florence, but uh, we decided to go go up to Venice. And uh, when we got up there to Venice, uh, we was, uh, like I say, there's no, uh, there's no automobiles or anything. It's, uh, so anyhow, there's little cobblestone streets. We was walking down a little cobblestone street, and... Uh, First thing I heard was a machine gun a cracking, and uh, it turned out we was about to walk in a prison, and they had the guards up there, and it was me and my wife and Stevie, and, and they cocked their machine gun. I, I know that sound, so I looked and, uh, and said, Alto. <laughs> so we turned and went the other way. We got on another little street, and uh, it just wasn't, well, like I say, with no cars anyhow, but then there was a, a window, and there's a fiddle hanging in the window. And I just knocked on the door, and this old man come out. And he looked like he was about 80 years old. He he come out and invited invited us in. So we went in uh, went in the shop. It was two of them, and uh, the uh, uh, they was making what you call a quartet. They had a they was making a violin, they was making a viola, a cello, all out of the same tree. And uh, I had heard of that, but I'd never, never seen anything like it. But I was looking mostly, uh, I was interested in the violin to see how they was graduating, how they was doing their wood. And in, I thought, well, that's amazing. Here, we live over here in the mountains of Virginia, and these people's making fiddles the same way we are. You know, it's, it's really, uh, although we were around the world, you know, a uh, long ways apart. But uh, so Albert Hash, I don't know where he learned, but uh, evidently, uh, uh, he, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> but I was impressed at the fact that they was making a uh, what you call a quartet, which only the royalty back now it all started could afford. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's it's just something to see that, that uh, and that kind of work. I, I, I know that's, that's been years, so I hope somebody else has taken up their, uh, their trade somewhere or another. But uh, then we come down to... Uh, uh, through Bologna or something. Uh, anyhow, there's a violin school. I think it was Bologna. And what they'd done, when they'd finish a violin, before they put any finish on it, they'd get it all carved and everything. They hung, hung it in the belfry, the bell tower, and they let nature uh, do their... See, when they'd done their work making one, then nature had to take over and uh, do uh, their work. So... Actually, half of your instrument in making the violin is nature's work. Not only the wood, but the sound. They, the nature puts the sound. And uh, that's something we, you know, I, I forget myself sometimes when you get in a hurry and you don't have time to let nature do its thing. And then you, 
you know, I, I think from now on, every instrument I make, is gonna, I'm going to hang for at least six months in the air and uh, try to start practicing what I've seen <laughs> before I put the finish on. Let, let nature uh, settle it down. And uh, because nature, see, uh, everything that you do, every cut you make on wood, it puts, it puts a, in a bind. Uh, it changes everything. You can take wood that's uh, 200 year old, you make one cut, that wood will change. And the reason you have so many uh, instruments with uh, twisted necks or different things is because they're in too big a hurry to let the wood uh, relax. You know, the wood has to be relaxed so you, you, you can uh, work with it uh you can't you know you can't work with people that's not relaxed so you ain't gonna work with wood you know <laughs> and that's that was a living thing too you know wood was and uh if you try to force yourself to work on a musical instrument you're going to either tear up the wood or tear up your fingers and when you're around saws and things you don't you know you just don't best thing to do is walk off and uh wait till you get get uh your uh mind straightened out and go back to working then and uh but that's uh uh, I, I, you know, that's the way I feel about it. Everybody's got their own idea about things, but uh, that's my idea of things. And uh, uh, one time was uh, me and Thornton Spencer. We'd I'd make a fiddle and we'd sit for four or five hours just just in the sound post, moving the bridge a little bit, and we'd play the same tune over and over and over, and we'd just and sit there for four and five, sometimes six hours. Uh, and Justin and trying to see what would work. We even took soot out of a, he had an old coal stove that he kept uh, fire, kept heat with. We took soot out of that coal stove and tried to make finish. Uh, in fact, I made a fiddle and uh, sold it to uh, Kyle Creed. Was, uh, he wanted a short scale, and every time he'd play it, he'd get black on his neck. <laughs> that was, <laughs> it's a good fiddle, but we, we was trying to figure out the different things in uh, finishes, you know, everybody's got that. Uh, but uh, so I thought, well, rather than spend all your time trying to, uh, you know, design, come up with something that will work, just go ahead and do what we know is going to work and forget about stuff that we know that might not work, you know. <laughs> so actually, I got a fiddle I'm about done with. It's going to be an eagle head. I've got uh, most everything, but I, what I'll do, I'm going to finish it within the next 30 days. And then you come back in a year, I'm gonna hang it up and we'll compare and see what it sounds like. Of course, you ain't got nothing to compare about because every, every instrument is different, but I think that that would really give it character. Uh, every instrument I ever made is my instrument until somebody wants it and they would be happy with it. Because I'd, I'd hate to have somebody make me something and, and then I'd seen it and I didn't want it and they'd feel like, you know, then I'd have to go ahead and take I, I wouldn't do that. No, I, I only sell something that's finished if somebody wants it. I mentioned earlier that Tom Barr also worked as a union organizer. Here he tells how he came to do that kind of work, some conflicts he's had with the city of Galax, and about helping the family of a fellow violin maker in a very special way. I moved back to Galax in 1970, but I still drove back and forth to Mount Airy. And uh, I, I got to know some, uh, some of the working conditions around here. 
and uh, the people working in the factory. My granddaddy hadn't worked in the factory all his life, and the minimum wage. I mean, they never, never made a, a nickel over the minimum wage. Well, anyhow, I called the AFL, AFL-CIO to see what might could be, see if they could. You know, I had worked in Mount Air, and we we had making five times what there was in Galax, and. Uh, so anyhow, they sent a union that represented in, and we talked, and the next thing you know, they hired me. So I went on the gates of putting out union literature. Uh, that's in 1978. I, I had a busy year. <laughs> but anyhow, I, uh, we organized two or three plants. But one plant, uh, why I was organized, is a plant up in Waynesboro, Virginia. It was called the Velveteen Plant. And uh, they done. They took. Uh, they made corduroy. What it was, it was a uh, material, and they had these little blades that cut lines, and that become corduroy. We had no idea that corduroy was going to be discontinued, obsolete. So we went on that plant, and we had our, our pictures, um, you know, all our posters out, and we had an election. And uh, the night before the election, that company, they burnt one of their trucks down in. Uh, Reedsville, North Carolina, there's one of the trucks at a truck stop, and they took red paint and throwed all over their signs. And then when we had to walk in, the people working there thought we had destroyed their signs and burnt their trucks, and we lost the election. But that was how Vicious Union, uh, you know, organized. That's what companies would go to. They'd go to anything in the world just to keep them people at starvation wages and no benefits. And we had no idea that the plant was going to be closed anyhow, but it later it closed, so everybody lost, and uh, even the workers and the, the, you know. But anyhow, down here, after I'd done that, I thought about, you know, going to work, and uh, but I found out that if you've ever worked with the union, been a union organizer, nobody will hire you. So I was betrayed. I was a draftsman, so I had to give that part up. So I went in. That's when I decided to just strictly music store you know that was going to be my work because nobody would uh nobody would even talk to me about a job you know i'd, I'd go talk to them but uh, they're not interested in anybody that knows that it's a better way of life so anyhow uh we had a strike in galax and i, I took a had an old patchy chevrolet pickup and i got a little barrel and i put galluses on it and put stevie stevie wasn't about 10 year old or maybe eight or nine Anyhow, I uh, put him in that barrel, and I had a sign on the side of it. We work in Galax, can't afford clothes. And we had 30-some people going to march with us in the uh, Freedom Parade, 4th of July, where you show you know, everything's free, you know. And so here come the state police and the city police and the fire department and blocked their way. And the uh, state police said, we can't have nothing to do with this. And they took off out of town, the state police did. Well, anyhow... Uh, uh, after that, so we didn't get to be in the, the Freedom Parade, but there was 12 people said that they would go to court with me. So I got a law firm out of Charlottesville, Virginia, so I took this city and his chief of police to federal court, and they was found guilty. The chief of police had no respect for the Constitution of the United States. The city of Galax had, was found guilty in federal court not having any respect for the Constitution of the United States. They lost several thousand dollars, and they had to sign a statement they would never interfere with us again. So they, they found out what 
what can be done, that the laws they have in a small town does not mean anything if somebody wants to stand up. But there was only 12 people out of them, 30 people would go to court with me. And they, they benefited from it. Well, then it went on uh, later, same time we had the uh, devil and all that stuff out here. Uh, there was a, uh, the Moose Lodge didn't want anybody to put any kind of uh, musical instruments or anything out here. So I, I put a fiddle out, and all these people in the business around here said, if you don't put something out, said, we won't never be able to sell anything on the sidewalk again. So I put something out, and everybody said they'd do it. Well, everybody else chickened out, and here come the police. Give me a ticket for having stuff on the sidewalk. So I said, well, we'll go to the Supreme Court with this thing. So then they couldn't find anybody to try me. They finally found some kind of prosecuting attorney out of down in Bristol or somewhere. And so then when we got to court, see, I was going to go up here to the, the uh, regular court, and then I was going to uh, appeal it to Richmond and all because if um, if it, I had pictures of all this uh, stuff on the street and the sidewalks out here around the Fiddler's Convention, so they could not deprive us of uh, not having anything on the sidewalk if they let other people. So anyhow, uh, if you didn't clean your sidewalks of snow, they would give you a ticket. We had to pick up the trash and everything. So anyhow, when we got to, got to court on that, they decided, when they finally found a prosecuting attorney and everything, when they lost again, they had to uh, hire somebody. To, they have to hire them to clean the snow off the sidewalks. They have to have, they got people picking up trash in the street. And turned out, they said the, the ruling was the city of Galax cannot force labor anybody. They cannot give, never give another ticket for having snow on your sidewalks or anywhere in town unless they want to pay people to clean. The, they, they chose to, uh, to claim the sidewalks, which we had been keeping clean for years. And when they claimed them, there's their responsibility. Well, the poor city lost again. I, I hope they don't do it again. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all for the right thing, and I don't like uh, having to try to straighten everything out, but somebody's got to do it, and I know they'll be glad when I'm gone. <laughs> and me and the mayor, we got an award during the barbecue festival, and it was uh, the mayor standing beside him, and, he, and it, the award said, uh, uh, the award read uh, something about the, uh, best of Virginia or something. And I looked over at the mayor. With me and him both were raised here. I said, well, we've come a long ways not to go nowhere. <laughs> so he said, can I use that in my campaign? And I said, yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, it's, uh, he's the one that opened the Fiddler's Convention down here with the speech. He's going to be using that in his speeches too. Said. <laughs> I had a friend. I got their picture on the wall there, two of them. Uh, they, uh, I, t I used to teach a lot of people making fiddles now. But this, this man from up Sparta, Floyd Reeves, he, they're just wonderful people. He used to work at the liquor store in Sparta. I went up there and bought a half a gallon of liquor one time. Uh, how I met him, anyhow, I bought this half a gallon of liquor. And uh, anyhow, there's five or six people took a drink out of it. Well, everybody got sick. And I decided there's something wrong with that liquor. So I took about a half a jar of it back up to the liquor store and I, at Sparta, we couldn't buy none in Virginia then, they had to go to Sparta to get it. And I said, you know, it was Floyd. I said, there's something wrong with this liquor. I said, everybody's had a drink, it's got sick. <laughs> I said, would you send this back and see if they uh, analyze it? I said, it's for, you know, see if it's poison. 
Anyhow, they, he said he would. Well, anyhow, we got to talking, and he, he he said he'd like to learn to make a fiddle. And you know, I, I know he thought I was crazy, taking liquor back to the liquor store. <laughs> anyhow, I told him where I lived and everything, and uh, and there's a couple of them up there in Sparta. They wanted to come down to the house. Well, there's three of them, actually. One fellow uh, worked at Dr. Graybull Pipe Company in Sparta. Back then, it's all gone now, too. But he engraved pipes, smoking pipes, which was real fancy and also used briar wood. In fact, I made uh, chin rest out of some of that wood they gave me from the factory up there. But anyhow, they come down and learned to make fiddles. And Floyd made a lot of good, he made good fiddles. And... Uh, Two months ago, Floyd passed away, and his uh, daughter called me, his wife. They come down, they've said that he, he'd been cremated, and they're trying to figure out something to put his ashes in, and uh, they want to know what I thought. And I said, well, I got, let me, I told them what I'd do. I, I had an old coffin case made back in the 1800s, just like a new one. I had two, actually. I got one is rosewood, and one is ebony-like. So I cleaned that ebony one up, and uh, and we fixed it to put his ashes in for the uh, services now. And this is a it's a coffin case. It's an old coffin case. It's got arch top. It's just like a coffin. Uh, fiddle. Since he was a fiddle maker, I thought, well, now, you know, to me now that would be appropriate. Now the reason I saved that rosewood, that's going to be mine. You know, ro you know, rosewood casket. Well, anyhow, I've got. I've got a rosewood fiddle case made back in the, about 1860-something. It's just like new. Got brass handles. Well, the one I give her was uh, black and all, and real pretty thing. So anyhow, she she wrote, I mean, she come down and called and everything. Talk, that was, said that was the most appropriate thing, Said and she appreciated it. And she sent a $50 gift certificate down and I think Stevie took it to the store to get some stuff but anyhow I, I you know you can't charge he was a friend of mine and I thought that's what Floyd would like and see I've got a little uh, pet cemetery I've started up there above the house all my dogs know as, as they pass away so that's what I'm gonna do when something happens to me I'm gonna be cremated and, I'm gonna, and that's my rosewood casket and I'm gonna be buried with my dogs I hope Becky don't mind <laughs> But anyhow, that's uh, that was uh, that situation where a personalized thing. Now Floyd, the greatest thing he ever done in his life, told me many times was starting to make fiddles. He said it really meant something. And he lived up and he was still working in fiddles up in his 80s, and that's uh, you know that, that means a whole lot now. And uh, I mean them, them fellows, I tell you what, they're, they're some good people. Yeah. I asked Tom to talk some more about his work as a union organizer because I could see that his passion for music and making musical instruments was just part of his story. He was also passionate about people being treated fairly and with dignity. Another reason uh, the union was in, I was, before I went to work for the AFL-CIO, I got a job over at uh, the Haynes Corporation, which made t-shirts and shorts and things. And when I was working over there, uh, I didn't work long, but there's, uh, uh, they had a, a uh, thing over it mixed up all this uh, chemicals, bleach and everything, and it was a boiling water or chem solution, and they, you had to stir it with uh, 
with a uh, air line and it had a uh, valve you turned the air on and the air going into this big uh, container full of all this liquids the air made the uh, chemicals mix up well somebody had put a, a T valve instead of a round screw valve on that thing and this boy went in there and and he was working right beside of me, but he went in there and opened that valve. And what happened? He he didn't he put too much air and it blowed this scalding water all over him. Well, uh, it was in the winter time, and uh, then he had this supervisor come up and said, uh, uh, "How about take take him outside and wait for the ambulance and everything?" The boy's clothes was stuck to him; his hide was scalded off. They took him out in 30-degree uh, weather and set him down waiting for the rescue squad. And then uh, they said, well, get him out there. He's disrupting this work and all. And uh, that was another thing. I left Haynes. That's why I quit him. I, and they, that boy died from pneumonia, exposure to cold weather. So that's how ruthless the companies are. That was, it's, all of this has happened about 78, 79 in that period of time. But that was just, uh, that was another tragedy that happened. Well, there's another thing. They was down here at uh, Bone Bassett Furniture Company. This girl was working in the finishing end and running a buffer. as a black, black girl. And uh, anyhow, they had a big short in this buffer, and they wouldn't repair it. And she kept working. Well, it... Uh, and she's doing this finish. Well, she got burnt real bad. It set, started to fire. They took her outside and set her down beside the railroad track, waiting for the ambulance and told everybody to get back to work. Well, that, that's the attitude of corporations. The people does not mean anything. I mean, you know, it's all profit. It's money. That's, and, uh, but, you know, with that kind of attitude, somebody has got to do something. And, uh, of course, there's other people who helped me. Now, I'll just tell you, we had, we had about 30 people after we got started. We had about 30 people. We went everywhere. We, we'd go and we'd have meetings. We worked hard trying to get this town organized, turned into something. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think, it's, uh, I think it helped, really. Uh, anyhow, when we had these, uh, started having these meetings with Haynes, and I, after I went to work for the AFLCO, uh, uh, actually it was uh, amalgamated, amalgamated clothing textile workers union, uh, and see uh, what it was. That's a division of AFLCO, and uh, so anyhow, we got uh, started having meetings at the Fairview Ruiton building. And one time, I remember we had 800 people there from the Haynes Corporation. And I could give all these speeches, but some way or another, within two or three years of doing all this stuff, I, I don't know, something, I got to where I couldn't, uh, I got to where I just really had a problem talking to a group of people. I just kind of, it's like going into a shell or something. I just seemed like we talked and talked, and it never seemed like it was a working, you know. It, it's like you was doing all this stuff, but you couldn't see the results hardly, you know. It's take, But I found that it takes a long time to change the world. It, it's not going to do it in a year, five years, but every little bit will help. And uh, But I, I got to where I, don't, I think I may have had a, a, like a mini stroke or something. I don't know. It's something kind of clicked. And I, I got to where, it, you know, you'd have 30 people, but when it come up doing something, it'd only be five 
or 10. And it's like you didn't really make the right connection. And, you know, why ain't you got that 30? You know, where, where's the rest of them? You know, that's a, but, you know, that's, it, it's amazing to me. I, uh, I was uh, the director of uh, the uh, Shriners in this area. And I was uh, for two years. And what I done, if I looked out in, out in there in the audience, and if, if I didn't see anybody in a week or a couple of weeks, you know, at a meeting, if they hadn't missed a meeting a time or two, I would get on the phone or go to their house and see if they had a problem. And that's what we've lost. We've lost talking. They, everything is uh, uh, what you call electronic, you know, and it's just, uh, that's not a personal meeting with people, finding out what, what their problem is and see if you can help them or if they got some kind of problem, straighten it out. Don't let it just keep going. The electronic message is not going to do it. And uh, it, it, it'll destroy everything. Now, that's, uh, uh, which these people are texting all the time. Uh, I mean, really, you, you know, why don't they talk to somebody, call somebody, go see them, go visit them. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I also wish to thank the Chestnut Creek School of the Arts for providing us with lodging when we visited Galax. And for making us welcome at the Old Fiddlers Convention, I want to thank the Galax Moose Lodge 733, whose motto is, A burden heavy to one is borne lightly by many. Thank you.